Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, direct from the United Kingdom, a journalist, a BBC radio host, and most importantly for our present purposes, the author of a book entitled Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Hello and welcome, Dan Saladino. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me on. What you, a great intro. Thank you. I don't hear a whole <laughs> lot of that, so I appreciate that. I'm going to I don't believe you, but I'm going to I'm going to take it and run with it. So you in researching this book, I gather this book you did not necessarily spend a lot of time working on this book separate from the radio stuff you already do. It seems like the two were were complementary pursuits. But that having been said, making a book like this involved you traveling to literally dozens of mm. far-flung locales. I know, you know, this has been spread out over a decade plus, but this sounds like the adventure of a lifetime. This would be the adventure <laughs> of anyone's lifetime. And uh, we'll get into what the book is all about. But in attempting to record foods which are on the verge of potentially dying out, you have necessarily immersed yourself in dozens of local cultures which themselves mm. are on the verge of potentially dying out cumulatively this must be a very powerful experience, your professional experiences. Yeah, and it, but it, and uh, it, it all happened by accident in a way because I didn't set out thinking, okay, I'm going to draw up a list of countries and cultures and foods. And uh, I, you know, I've I've been a, a BBC journalist for 25 years, 10 years, uh, you know, just gen general news programs, and then 15 years as a, you know, what I can now describe as a food journalist, and. Uh, you know, it's not as if after first year of being a food journalist, I thought there'd be a second year. So I was, ju I just kept going really, and just following my nose as a journalist, driven by this curiosity from some of the earliest things that I'd seen and experienced, and the programs I'd made. Thinking, I really, really loved the idea of um, people who were growing food processing food in what they described as a traditional way and I wanted to understand the story behind it what what the origins of that food was um and uh yeah and it, it and it started also because of a childhood spent between two cultures I my father's Sicilian my mother's English I grew up in 1970s Britain which had you know, we were really falling in love with supermarkets and processed food during that decade. Whilst at the same time, I was traveling to this island during the summer holidays, often on my own to stay with my nonna, almost going back 100 years. And so I had two, I had um, a foot in both camps, in a sense. So I think that was one of the inspirations that made me think there were stories attached to food, because in Sicily, that's exactly what they did. They they sat around tables and they didn't have much television or anything else, but they they really knew how to talk about food and tell stories about food, some of which were true, some of which were complete fantasy. But um, yeah, so I fell in love with food stories and making this program allowed me to 
to kind of chase chase these stories and collect them. As someone who, as you say, had a foot in both camps as a child, I think I imagine British food has come quite a long way from the 1970s. But why yeah. why do you think that the southern part of the continent has food and good food as such a central part of its uh, of its identity, and then Britain in particular? seem to view food as sort of like necessary for mental and physical fortitude and not much else. <laughs> because we were, we, in, when I say we, you know, I, sure. again, I feel like I, I've got this split personality sometimes. I, I love Sicily and I, and, you know, and I, and I, um, when I was, uh, you know, 15, 16, always believed that I was going to leave school and then become an olive grower in Sicily because I was that, I was convinced that was my true culture. But I, uh, yeah, I think um, the Industrial Revolution basically is 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 the key thing to unlock the story of British food and the fact that we industrialized so rapidly and so early, and there was a a, a disconnect that happened um, quite aggressively between people and the land. Uh, again, that has a lot to do with uh, enclosures, and um, so uh, yeah. So I think it, this was centuries in the making, uh, and people ended up in in relatively urban settings, and our food system became um, industrialized quite quite quickly as well. Then followed by two world wars in which you know there was heavy government control over food production so even though we had a huge diversity of uh, of different cheeses for example at the beginning of the 20th century during the second world war there was one government sanctioned cheese which was cheddar because it was so it was seen as the most efficient way of using dairy and then the other the other ingredient is empire because we could it, particularly in the in the 19th century import a lot of food from other parts of the world that we had huge amounts of control over. Uh, put all that together, uh, you end up with uh, a, a, really, <laughs> a really unusual uh, relationship with food. And food did become fuel for the, for the fastest growing economy in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, and also gave us the cheaper food economy by the end of the 20th century, which I think we share with you, you know, in, in terms of the proportion of our incomes that we spend on food um and and obviously wrapped wrapped in with that is economic policy and politics so in a lot of ways you having spent some time with your but book. i haven't i, I sorry mike i didn't yeah. finish the second part of the please the go equation, right ahead. really which is the southern european but I, I think it's exactly because particularly in the south and if you think about italy and and sicily you've got you know the more more industrialized north um and you've got the you know the, the poorer south and the trade-off is, you know, that that the, they are poorer, but they are much closer to the land still. So when I when I was in Sicily in the 1980s, my cousins, my aunts, uncles, they all had day jobs. You know, they would have been a pharmacist or a teacher. They all had little farms, plots of land that they would spend their weekends on growing oranges or or olives and grapes and that kind of thing. So. You know, I think when, when you have that connection, that does translate into a food culture as well, because, you know, you have the ingredients, you have the connection, you know, and they didn't have supermarkets in the 80s. 
each of us uh, listening to this uh, bears the psychic weight of several known and acknowledged imminent threats to life as we know it on planet Earth. We've got atomic weapons. We've got climate change, to name just two. Your book throws another log onto that fire of terror uh, from what seems to be on its face a fairly benign direction, the biodiversity of the food that we grow and eat, not an obvious evil akin to the things I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. As you put it in the book, quote, we are farming on borrowed time. Why, in your opinion, is that the case? How did you come to recognize the existence and the severity of this issue? Mm. Uh, I think, yeah, I believe that's the case. I, I think I deal with multiple time lines in the book so uh, on one level you know i go back three point you know eight billion years in terms of the the appearance you know the the arrival of biodiversity and and then how did we get so much diversity in terms of uh plant life animals so that's that's one big timeline just for the reader to appreciate how long it took for us to have huge you know this biodiversity that we we currently have the second um, timeline is us as a species, and you can, you know, start at two million years is is not a bad timeline. Three hundred thousand years, Homo sapiens, uh, and the way we evolved as predominantly, uh, you know, hunter gathering is the most successful human lifestyle to date, um, because uh, yeah, the arrival of agriculture ten twelve thousand years ago is a relatively short period of time in our in our evolutionary history and even shorter is that industrial phase in which we have been able with 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 the application of science and technology to control to even greater levels nature and natural processes through um things such as crop breeding for example and so by the again you know early 20th century when we start to understand uh, you know genetics becomes a, a word and a, and a and an area of research one of the areas in which that is um, ad adopted most quickly is in crop breeding and then we have the uh, green revolution after the second world war in which the combination of the, the, the crop breeding technology but new irrigation systems new chemicals by which we can control pests and and uh, you know fungal diseases that kind of thing so bearing in mind that very very long history of how we got here and then this rapid shift sorry this rapid shift that we've seen in a relatively short time it's a blip really uh, of how we have taken control of nature and what we've done is it's in a way is a success story because we used our you know the best science and the best technology that we had available to do a really important thing which is to produce more calories and we did that by selecting and selecting and selecting the really highly productive plants and animals. And uh, by also reducing the amount of diversity that we had to deal with as a species. It turns out, and this is where I, this was a, the, the revelation for me in terms of why I wanted to write the book. I was aware because of the radio work of these traditions that people were um, in different parts of the world saying we we want to save this and i thought well you know, beautiful lovely quaint you know traditions great i love these stories i love the history the location the... but in writing the book i was actually able to join the dot dots between well, you know these these felt like different 
or pieces of a jigsaw that, that gave me this big picture that they weren't just quaint, wonderful, beautiful traditions. Di this diversity that they reflected, that they had all of these different agricultural systems, different crop genetics in different parts of the world adapted to each ecosystem, different breeds of animals, again, adapted to the particular conditions. That actually started to become an asset that we were losing uh, because um, as the world was changing, we, we needed greater resilience in the food system, experts were telling me, and that genetic diversity and all that diversity of different farming systems is exactly the one of the key things that we will need going forward to give us the flexibility and the resilience to deal with these different pressures. And you've mentioned one of them, climate change. But none of this is new because I also in the book talk about a Russian botanist who is a hero figure for many people in this field today, Nikolai Vavilov who traveled the world, five continents, collected 150,000 seeds with his team and placed them in a seed bank in St. Petersburg. Um, and that was a century ago. And there are a succession of botanists who have followed his work right through to today. And they've, they are the people who've been saving seeds, keeping seed banks going, even digging tunnels in the Arctic Circle to create a seed vault, the doomsday vault for 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 humans because the, the common theme is that we need diversity in order to be able to deal with what's coming and by shrinking the diversity we, we've become uh, exposed to huge amounts of risk and one example i'll give you is you know for example the cavendish banana and this is the most famous example um we've had two uh types of globally traded banana one was the original in a way the gross michel the the um, one that's been um grown around the world traded around the world uh since the 1960s particularly is the cavendish grown in monocultures vast monocultures genetically uniform because they're propagated as clone you know clonal propagation they're being hit hard by a fungal disease because they were removed from the evolutionary process by which in the wild they would they would evolve alongside um, these fungal diseases and they would slowly kind of outcompete one another, but there would always be adaptation. By removing it and producing the cheapest, one of the cheapest fruits in the supermarket, we've created the perfect, perfect environment for a fungal disease to arrive, hit one plant, and if it can hit one plant, it can wipe out the plantation. And if you think that's just one crop, one scenario but the same is true for all of our other genetically uniform foods that have provided us with so many calories for a few decades but really um it's causing a huge amount of risk in the system okay so to paint the picture of the <clears throat> the doomsday scenario that people of, of the same mind as you would be concerned about because let's use the the cavendish as as an example i've been sort of following that story for a while and they've got the next one lined up that's going to be you know the third in the line of the ubiquitous 19 cents a pound grocery store mm -hmm. a banana if you know i'm just playing devil's advocate if we have a store of seeds of all the biodiversity that we've ever had somewhere safe if the dominant monsanto wheat grain fails 
Of course, that's going to be cause a short-term issue, but can't we just plant the other ones when that one, if and when that one fails? Possibly. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the successor to the Cavendish is going to be yet. And oh, I, I thought they, had, like, I thought they'd settled that. I'm, I could be wrong. No, no, but well, I, I, there lot that there is a, a, a wide range of different options facing us. So there's genome edited Cavendish, so they can actually either yeah edit to to actually um, reactivate some of the traits in the Cavendish that that have been lost that might give some resistance. Uh, um, or actually, as, as some people are doing, they are doing traditional breeding techniques with some of the wild ancestors of the Cavendish to bring back in some of the diversity. Um, but, but but again, this is a, just think about how how relatively you know short the period is has been in which we've been part of this experiment of huge amounts of um, uh, of yield. But uh, it is, and it's almost almost as if nature is catching up. But it, and. Um, the, you know, monocultures do not exist in nature. I mean, that's, that's one thing to to bear in mind. And it, the, the 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 risk of disease isn't the only issue here. Um, a lot of these systems are heavily dependent on um, fertilizers and other inputs. And as we're learning right now in terms of global energy issues, you know, they they are heavily dependent on fossil fuels. So I don't know what the price changes have been in the U.S., but here. Um, you know, uh, fertilized cost of fertilizer per ton has gone up, um, you yeah, know, from uh, uh, 250 pounds a ton to a thousand pounds a ton. Um, and, you know, a lot of impact because of, uh, you know, a, a wider global issues about energy, but also because of what's happening in Ukraine as well. And uh, so we've created these very efficient, I mean, efficient in terms of just-in-time supply chains, high-yielding, uh, but are they are, are they going to serve us well into the long term is, is the question. So I'm not saying we are going to run out of bananas in a year's time. And in the book, I talk about coffee as well. We're not going to see the disappearance of Arabica or Robusta because of climate change, but think ahead to, you know, 50, 60, 70 years hence. And, you know, you can see how, um, well, certainly the the, the experts I, I, I talk to who do the modeling for this are convinced there are serious issues that we need to to deal with. Yeah, the coffee one's going to hit harder to uh, closer to home <laughs> for people than than the banana one. Yeah. I, I've, I've yeah, had yeah. Rustica is the other one because the only thing Robusta, I, I, yeah, 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 I'm sorry, so, Robusta. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I sampled it in, in Indonesia and I can see why we all drink Arabica instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it is more robust as the name implies. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Arabica was hit hard by uh, a type of disease called rust in in the late 19th century, which is why India used to be a big coffee growing nation, but no longer is. And it's a, and it's now predominantly a tea growing nation. That's because a fungal disease wiped out pretty much their Arabica crop. And it was only really in the 1920s that Robusta became the number two um, cultivated uh, species of coffee. Uh, there are more than 115 different species of coffee. But again, we've focused in on just two. So a relatively sh small genetic base for most coffee production, which is why a lot of experts in coffee based at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew went to Sierra, Sierra Leone three years ago to try and track down the last surviving trees of a species called Stenophylla, which was a really popular coffee 
in that country up to the 1950s, but then was thought to be extinct. Stenophylla has greater disease resistance, is more drought tolerant than Arabica. So as you were saying with the banana story, that could be a coffee that that perhaps our kids will be drinking, um, you know, in in a couple of decades time. Well, I know I read an article at one point that sort of buried the lead. Star- Starbucks is preparing for a future in which they m- coffee might not be easily affordable to as many people as Starbucks is used to selling coffee to. So if Starbucks is taking it seriously, mm-hmm. perhaps the rest of us ought to. And this does have already real world um implications uh, i don't expect you to be the master of every detail in your book it's a i, I know you it came out last year and there's a lot of stuff in there but um you talked about the um the the human caravans that were a political issue in uh in america people moving from central mm. uh america and and uh, mexico north uh, a not significant number percentage of those people were on the move you say because of the issues with coffee crops mm. so the same fungal disease that i mentioned that that hit hard in the 19th century did so in 2014 right so the environmental conditions were in place for this um you know this devastating disease to spread through plantations uh in countries such as ecuador for example and it it reduced yields dramatically and not only were yields um hit hard but also the quality of what was being produced so coffee farmers did you know their incomes were were um you know seriously uh you know reduced by the, by this disease outbreak and you know a lot of people did leave the land and head north um and you know a lot of journalists who were on the ground were were you know researching why were these uh, migrant caravans happening and and yeah they were having a they ended up having conversations with with uh people who were former coffee growers because they had to basically give up and find a new source of income uh, so again, that's that that is a really stark example for me of of what might come in future as climate changes, as you know, some of the crops around the world. Well, in India right now, for example, severe drought. You know, really, you know, some record-breaking temperatures, and um, that's that's impacting on on wheat yields there. Uh, and a consequence of that is that they are now. Um, They've stopped exporting wheat globally. I mean, India, because of the Green Revolution, became a, a wheat exporter. And now it's actually shut down the, you know, the trade barriers uh, and it's holding on to its wheat. And part of that is because of this extreme temperature that they're experiencing right now. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, we will find replacement crops. There will be another Cavendish. But if we're thinking strategically if we are learning lessons from what we are seeing my argument in the book is that we need greater diversity and i profile more than 30 endangered foods from around the world my argument isn't that these foods will be feeding the world in the future my argument is that a better food system in the future will will be one in which these foods are no longer endangered because we are valuing diversity diversity of food crops livestock but also systems we will still need you know the large-scale intensive systems where they are appropriate but at the same time i do think you know there's a really strong case from decades of experience of seeing crop failures that greater genetic diversity um, is going to benefit us going forwards but there are you know there are many many more arguments as well that, that come with that and 
you know, it's to do with nutrition. Uh, it's to do with identity and culture. I mean, do we, as human beings, do we really want to live in a world in which we're all wearing the same clothes, listening to the same music and eating the same foods? To put some specific numbers to that phenomenon, <clears throat> excuse me, again, from the book, um, of the 6,000 plant, 6, plant species, mm. humans have eaten over time yeah. since we became yep. agricultural or at least started gathering. The world now mostly eats nine. Yeah. Of which, of three, which three, three of, provide fifty yeah, percent of all calories, uh, d directly or, or indirectly. Rice, wheat, and maize, corn. Yeah, yeah. So from and so, and you can add soy, soy as well as number four, and you know that 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 is, um, yeah, that provides huge amounts of calories to the world. Obviously, soy indirectly, but um, and you know as a relatively newcomer, it's mind blowing as a story. So I just thought, yeah, it, it is. I didn't realize that soy was not a. Um, a... Uh, didn't have a place in the Western diet, as far as I can tell, based on your book, until, was it the 60s, the 70s? Mm. It really hadn't made it out of Asia. And it's funny, because I don't know how much you have of this in the UK, but there's this paranoia among a certain section of the American population about the effects that um, uh, soy might have on one's health, particularly one's manliness. Um, oh. and, and this is propagated <laughs> by people who probably have no idea how much soy they're already eating and even if you skip mm. to even if you skip tofu you've still got you've had more soy than your grandfather ever had in his entire life yeah yeah well if, if we I mean, soy was domesticated in in china mm -hmm. several thousand years ago and then um it was used to make sauces i mean it was fermented and then this ingenious process that 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 creates tofu as well which looks like magic when you see it unfolding and, um, you know, that was an important, you know, soy was a really important uh, part of, um, you know, a Asian food cultures. Uh, but he, as far back as the um, 19th century, there were, you know, uh, seed collectors from the USDA, uh, from Russia, from, from uh, Britain, who were collecting soy and also experimenting because of its unique properties or, you know, these extremely high levels of protein, uh, and oils as well. A lot of it ended up being used in industrial processes. So, you know, and, uh, there were stories of, um, you know, of, uh, Ford manufacturing bit, different bits of cars out of the, of the, of, of soy as well, because it could be converted in an industrial process and used for adhesives and for paint as well. But at the same time, there were, um, you know, people such as uh, Kellogg and Seventh-day Adventists, people who were pursuing vegetarian diets as, as far back as the 1920s and 30s who were experimenting with soy. But it's only when there was a, a protein crisis, really, in the 1970s, um, you know, which, again, there have been so many different um new discoveries of, of protein sources in different parts of the world for, for agricultural use. So in other words, to feed animals and other parts of the food, food processing. But um, yeah, one, one of the uh, fisheries in, in, um, in the Americas failed, which created a bit of a panic globally. And that's when things really started to scale up um, both um, in, in the States and then because, again, there were trade restrictions in the States because, you know, the U.S. farmers were growing soy. And at that point, um, America needed to hold on to the soy it was produ producing. At that point, Japan was an importer already of American soy. And so it had to look elsewhere and started to invest in 
Brazilian soy production as well in the 70s. And so we see a really rapid increase in, in soy cultivation uh, to the point where you know, now Brazil is, is you know, uh, overtaking the states pretty clearly. That's, that's happening. Um, and it's become an essential part of the global modern food system and underpins most of the livestock sector and meat industry. So, yeah, we do, we still haven't fallen in love with tofu, but we are heavily dependent on um, soy for its proteins and its oils. And, and, and the, yeah, if you look at the ingredient list on, on a processed food, you typically mm. will find in some form or another some form of soy. I yeah, find. from chocolate bars yeah. through to, you know, again, again you know, uh, margarines or, or, you know, there's just so many different processed foods. It's and as emulsifier, as an ingredient in emulsifiers as well. So, again, it's... It, you know this abundance of food um that we have this this diversity that we see in the supermarkets you could argue is an industrial form of diversity in which in you know that these extremely ingenious processes can take maize or can take soy and convert it into these many many different food products and that ties into a, a a sort of paradox that you stress in the book, which is on one hand, we all enjoy, I went to a supermarket this morning, there's all kinds of things there. We enjoy a range of foods available to us that like kings from 100, maybe 200 years ago would have envied. On the other hand, you say we have far less variety at our fingertips than common people might have enjoyed a couple of generations ago. Is that so? If so, how could that be so? Mm. It's partly you need to scratch the surface or kind of, dive, you know, take a deep dive into, um, you know, the global food system. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of it, it is is clever processing to create an appearance of diversity. But it's an industrial form of diversity because what you what you start to see is the inputs into that system are pretty uniform. And when I when I by that, I mean. Um, again, maize can be used to, to produce hundreds of different food products, but it at, it at a genetic diversity kind of seen seen assessed in that way. It it's yeah, it's lacking in diversity. Um, they, these are commodity crops that could be processed. So if you actually look at the inputs, and again, the foundations of much of the food system take the you know the humble seed which without without seeds very much of our food would exist um yeah more, more than 50 percent of the world's um seeds are developed and traded by just four corporations and again they they, they they're businesses so they have to focus on these really high selling um seed varieties that can be sold and distributed to different parts of the world so again there's huge amounts of genetic uniformity that are that create the, the building blocks of the global food system and huge amounts of ingenuity in the processing to create this diversity. If you take cheese in the States, so 95% of the US dairy herd is one breed of cow, the Holstein, you know, a really high, high, uh, you know, highly productive um, uh, cow that, that it, you know, in terms of the liters uh, or the, you know, the amount of milk, that it produces, you know, it's almost it's more than doubled in in the space of the you know uh, the twentieth century. Um, so again, it's just this this uniformity that underpins the system that can be processed to look as if it's creating this the diversity that you you saw today. 
this is a strange question that just popped into my mind, but I feel like some of the 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 luster has come off of the organic movement for for a couple of different reasons. Um, I wonder if we would not see uh, a, a biodiversity movement coming. It seems to me that it would be very appealing for for you know a Whole Foods or whatever your your equivalent is to whatever is above Sainsbury's to 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 say non non Holstein non. This is not Monsanto wheat. This, I, and I know that you can find wild wheats at Whole Foods. Don't get me wrong, but the mainstreamization of that idea that we should be eating more biodiverse stuff. Mm. And yeah, that's that's that's, <laughs> that's an interesting question. And I think uh, in in some parts, I mean, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, like a lot of movements, you know, they start small and then they, you know, they build up. So you know, in in the states, you've got um, Steve Jones at the Washington Bread Lab, who is uh somebody i think it's been profiled by dan barber in his book um he uh, the chef dan barber um so the what he's doing is creating he wants to put to create um kind of regional grain you know, grain economies and he's doing that not by going back and saying oh we should all be growing traditional wheats he's taking some of the traditional wheats and as a crop breeder he's creating these new so-called land races Land races are the types of crops that if you're a farmer and you can save your seed and plant it the next year, it will keep adapting year after year after year. And also in the field, you will have a huge amount of diversity as well. And that diversity within the field. So, again, this isn't a field of clones. This is a this is a population of wheats that you grow. And again, it's just common sense here that if you have that genetic diversity in a field, you will have a degree of security that some will fail in a really bad year but some will survive because they have the the different traits so he's you know and he's, he has as part of his breeding program a bakery in the the um the washington bread lab so that everything is only sent out for farmers to grow if it tastes good and he believes that there's a really strong association between good tasting bread and good nutrition as well um so i mean th so i think there is a movement underway which obviously you probably see quite you know often perhaps you know in in some cases in supermarkets most definitely in um in in, in farmers markets but but I, I think the reason why i think this could become more mainstream as as a as a term as something that we you know as people you know buying food will become more engaged in is the it's the nutritional arguments that are now emerging. So, for example, um, the emerging science of the gut microbiome, uh, this idea that you know we host trillions of microbes and the more diverse those microbes in our guts, the more the more beneficial that is to our physical and mental health. And the more diverse our diets, it turns out, the more diverse our gut microbiomes. Again, I'm not really so if, if you as I did, I spent some time with hunter-gatherers in, in East Africa. They have a potential menu of 800 different plant and animal species. Impossible for us to replicate. replicate. We're never going to become hunter-gatherers again. But it's just a glimpse into the idea that our evolutionary history as human beings was heavily dependent on diversity. And when archaeologists find bog bodies which in which their stomachs are preserved, huge amounts of diversity are found when they look inside, you know, their, their stomachs. 
as well. And I think, again, in the pursuit of efficiency and yield and, uh, you know, all those other things that we now know about the, you know, the modern retail supply chains and supermarkets, uh, that diversity has really narrowed. And I think people will have the most selfish reason of all to learn more about biodiversity and you know, want to participate in saving diversity. And that's their health. Um, and just finally, on that, there is um, a, a, a new project underway um, called the uh, Dark Matter of Nutrition. Again, this is a research project being that, that was started in, in the States. And the idea being that the chemical compounds that we can, we've identified and measure when it comes to understanding good nutrition are just a fraction of what actually exists in something as humble as a carrot. Sure. Yeah. So I think... You know, we are our relationship and our understanding of diversity is changing because of this new science. Of all the places that you visited in in researching this book, is there you mentioned spending time with hunter gatherers? I'm sure that was an extraordinary experience. Is, mm -hmm. is is if you had to boil it down to to one, is there any one that really stands out to you as uh, just the most memorable, the most striking for any particular reason? Uh, the one <laughs> there was one place that um made me yeah I, I cried when i left and this was uh albania and i'd uh so this is um so if you picture italy uh if you crossed um the, the, if you went eastwards over um the adriatic and then You'd, you'd get to Albania and it's quite close to Greece and it it, it was pretty closed off for um, because of a, a very strict communist regime right up until the um, uh, early 1990s. And I went there in search of a type of cheese that's, that people were describing to me. It was a, it's a type of cheese that's um, fermented. In a, in a in the stomach of uh, of a goat or a sheep so it's a so-called um sack cheese and uh and i arrived there and, and and the most bizarre thing is that you 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 move through the landscape and you see all these different um uh, relics of the cold war because it was they had such a paranoid leader um, that, that he created all these bunkers and uh, places where snipers could be. So you're, you're traveling through this landscape that you're being reminded of the Cold War. And yet at the same time, an extremely, certainly as you, as, as you head north, an extremely remote rural um, uh, part of the world as well. Uh, and some of the most pristine, you know, untouched landscape and some of the most ancient pastures as well the reason that I, it was so important to me to go there was because it it it's one of the parts of europe where you actually get to understand the history of cheese and this idea that you know those early farmers from who left the fertile crescent so southeastern turkey and um you know th that that area around syria and you know what is today israel and that region, you know, gave birth to the um, domestication of the wild grasses that gave us wheat and barley. But Albania in this mountainous northern region where you couldn't grow those crops. But if you had animals and livestock, you could take them from your village up higher to the pasture 
and the sunlight being, you know, that, that was the energy from the sunlight that was creating all these nutrients in the grasses that the animals would be able to eat and convert into milk that you could then, while you're up in the mountains, turn into this solid, concentrated energy of cheese and then take back down to the village. Just blew my mind thinking that this is how we as a species managed to spread and, and go into the most hostile environments, really, with animals and make cheese and survive. And they had no starter cultures. So they were using the microbial life in the environment to, to actually start the, the starter process or the, the acidification of the milk and then the, you know, the fermentation process. And because of this communist uh, history, there were these villages where they were still making cheese in the most ancient of ways and uh yeah so, so I, I kind of it, I, it was such an experience being there and the reason I, I mean i was traveling with an italian guy who's no longer with us and um pier paolo ambrosi who was trying to find ways in which chefs and other people in other part uh, people in um the southern part of albania could sell these cheeses so that people could have an income in their villages and uh because huge amounts of rural depopulation um, and it was, yeah, so I, that that for me is one of the most memorable experiences. And I think it's because of that history, um, 20th century history, but also that really ancient history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And people who had lost pretty much everything because, the, you know, their culture, the, their religion, everything had been taken away from them during the communist period. And they were trying to, they were, they were, reviving some of this and actually kind of asking themselves who are we what who were we and they were doing that partly through food i've found that uh unique foods can sometimes leave very unique marks on our on our palates and our food memories um my my go-to example of this is uh testa which is like an italian you know head cheese sort of thing there's a place in new york everyone said you go there you got to get the testa i went there i got the testa i ate it i said eh, it's, it's not good it's not bad i don't really care went on with my life <clears throat> about two weeks later i don't know why i was riding the subway and i thought of it and i started salivating and i was mm. like oh my i've got to have that again and i think the fact that it was such an unusual food allowed it to sort of carve out a larger space in my food imagination than maybe a really good burger might have been able to or a really good falafel you had a lot of really unique foods in the course of of you know, just in the course of your work and in the course of working on this book is there anything that you had not tried before that you would gladly mm. get on a plane or a train to go and eat again well, there is one that 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 is, is is quite close to what you were describing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as you were saying that, my I was just thinking how mind if it, just imagine if we get to a point where we understand the gut microbiome a bit more. And actually, what you had done is when you ate that food, there was there was a kind of a, a response in your gut microbiome, and certain microbes started to kind of flourish, and they were sending a message to your brain saying, actually. We're here now. Yeah. We want more of that. We're I starving. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I don't. I don't know. But I understand what you mean. Sure. That was the thought process I was going yeah. in on, based on the conversations I've been having with people who are researching this. But um, no, it, it, a, a similar type of uh, process is in, in Faroe Island. So this is um, if you if you go as far north as you can, go through Scotland, 
um, so you know, in terms of Britain, right to the tip of um, Scotland, and then keep going. If you were to fly or, or go by boat another few hundred miles, you would end up on a remote island called the Faroe Islands. Um, and this is it belongs. It, it's it's under the um, rule of uh, con control of Denmark now, um, but it's yeah, it's in the middle of the North Atlantic, and there, you know, again, one of these really hostile. Um, environments but they you know it's a sheep it's a sheep environment where you know huge amounts of pasture but n not much else too windy and too harsh to to grow crops um and what they th what they did is um you know whether consciously or subconsciously by a process of you know accidents or experiments they created these sheds with gaps in the walls so that the sea air um comes in they hang the mutton so quite an old sheep and it it's bathed in the in the salty sea air and very very slowly i mean the perfect conditions uh, so it, it the, the temperature the of that of that part of the world the amount of salt in the air slowly slowly ferments the the meat into something that if you walked into this shed you'd think goodness me you know they've they've forgotten something and left it behind and you know what how awful it looks horrific but actually, if you wash it and then slice it very, very thinly, it becomes like a really d delectable, I would say, like prosciutto. You know, some people have described it as tasting somewhere between, uh, you know, Parmesan and death. I mean, I, I, I don't know what death <laughs> tastes like, but, you know, it, it, for some people, it's really it, it's too extreme because it's got this funky fermented flavor. But I think the, the power of that story for me is that because of that, process that they go through and then the really thin slices you know this debate we have about meat and should we be eating meat well, what kind of meat for me it's it, it was a glimpse back into what what meat must have represented to pe for, to people for so so long you know these it really hard long process to make it and then you would just have a have it as a garnish almost to comp to supplement your other foods not big chunks of meat and because it's fermented you don't need to eat it immediately. It, it just sits there for months and months and months. But the paleo diet has led me to believe that most of our ancestors ate several pounds of meat almost every single day. Uh, well, I, I, not, no, not no, every I, single day. Yeah. I mean, again, it, <laughs> I, I'm, jo I'm joking. Yeah. 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 No, but uh, yeah, no, I, th I think a lot of people think, and a lot of people live as, as you know, yeah, a lot of people kind of, that's the, that's the, the, that's possible now uh yeah. and but i don't obviously you know it's not a great thing to do on so many levels but um when you uh look at how the hadza for example so the the hunter gatherers that i spent some time with in tanzania um they they might go days without eating anything and then they would gorge themselves on honey if they found some honey or they if they were successful in a hunt they would end up with a lot of meat and again they would you know eat a lot but Again, there would be these, and and then some days they would just, you know, sit around a fire and then um, wait for the um, for the women to come in from uh, digging up tubers, and that would be their meal for a few days. So yeah, I think again that they're no proxy for prehistoric humans. I mean, they're thoroughly modern humans, but they are existing in in an environment um, in which probably the, the the that ecosystem hasn't changed much for tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of years. So I think it is a glimpse into those 
you know, up those ups and downs of the good fortunes of finding some honey or the occasional hunt. Uh, and then just lying around and possibly eating very little for a few days. Has the time that you spent uh, working on this book informed the way that, not just that you view food, but the way that you actually eat in any concrete way? Um, well, I'm st I'm lucky in that I still make the radio program, which takes me into all kinds of strange and unusual places to 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 eat food and um but i yeah i mean i i i probably think a, a bit more than i did a, about what is the story and the history behind that food uh i do think a lot about diversity when i'm shopping or eating not not in a in a sense where i'm thinking i need to be buying as many foods from the book as possible it's just that i'm conscious of you know, if I just buy, if I go to the supermarket and I buy some, but I, just being conscious of that, of that process of what it contains and what it doesn't contain. Um, but also, you know, if I have a beer, for example, you know, the idea of well, what is the story and who's behind that beer and why is it so difficult to buy this other type of beer as well? And who owns what, you know, I think in, in a sense it does. Yeah. It, it's, it's not so much. Um, yeah. I, I don't, probably eat that differently to most most people in in the part of the country that i live in because of you know access to food i use box schemes I, you know i order lots of different things but um i'm still in the same food environment than a lot of people i think it's just more the stories in my head really when i'm shopping and eating that that i think uh inform me and, and finally yeah. to, to wrap this up in in terms of the narrowing diversity of the foods that we are producing and therefore eating and the challenges that might potentially pose, you say it's not too late if we act now. So what in your opinion needs to be done now or very, very soon? And uh, based on what you know, how confident are you that the world will take the steps mm. that you believe are necessary? Well, I, I think a lot is happening. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, a global level, there was the um, a, the UN held a food system summit last year. That one was pretty, of the, one pretty, of the key themes. pretty stunning. You talked about the CEO of a couple of big companies going, yeah, 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 this is a problem. We need to do something about this. Well, and then that's that's the other thing. And uh, there are <laughs> there are many people in the food industry who recognize this is a problem. So this isn't just me and, you know, you know, embarking on uh, on a you know uh, a bit of storytelling in a book, thinking I feel this is feel this is important. Yeah, CEOs of of some of the biggest food corporations in the, in the world have publicly gone on record to say we've lost too much diversity from the system and we need to do something about that. Um, and I've been contacted by you know, senior figures from the food industry saying you know we we're really interested in this we don't know quite what what we can do yet but we know this is important um uh and also you know there's a huge amount of of, of investment and government funding uh and i know this is the, the case in the usda but uh, and in other parts of uh, the american food system as well whether you know this is a, a live issue but in the uk for example the government's funding projects to research um some of the ancient wheat varieties for, for farmers in the future so they have more diverse crops 
they might be grown in quite you know in monocultures in the future but they, it's another wave of diversity so, so i think you know and and if you go to a farmer's a farmer's event and you know a, a place where people talk about the future of wheat diversity is the thing that people are talking about because they know that these diseases are going to be extremely problematic and they're having to breed modern varieties more and more quickly because the you know the, the chemical inputs aren't doing the job anymore so i think that, you know this that that's the reality that we don't have a luxury of thinking this is a, a choice for the future this is actually something that the industry itself recognizes as a problem the holstein for example became so high yielding you know disease lameness even reproduction became problematic so they're having to roll back on on and and you know almost take it back in time a bit because of how far they took that breeding process the same with poultry as well in 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 the um in europe there's a big push now from uh, poultry uh producers um, to have slower growing birds based on different genetics. So it, it's happening. The question is, is it happening quickly enough? Um, and, you know, with public health budgets, type 2 diabetes, you know, obesity being a real issue as well, we know that, that, that we, know, we know the current system isn't serving us well. We know it isn't serving us well in terms of loss of biodiversity, heavy use of fossil fuels, heavy use of water, uh, but also the, the health outcomes of that, that high production, producing lots and lots of cheap calories, so-called cheap calories, isn't working. And um, we need to find another way. And, and I think it's not about going back in time. The book isn't saying that we need to go back to these traditional foods. It's actually saying we need to use the very best science and technology to try and bring some of these foods that were almost lost into the future because we need them. And the Indian government, I mean, I don't want to go on and introduce a new story, but in the, the right Indian government, the, the Indian government, for example, again, I mentioned, you know, the problems with wheat, um, you know, rice is also becoming a bit of a problem, huge amounts of water needed, fertilizer needed. Um, what they lost were millets, these tiny seeds that were really hard for people to mill and process. Um, well, we now have new milling technology, which means that this, these, these, this, new, this, uh, this lost crop can be brought back. And when there was research um, from a number of different academics based in the States saying, what would happen in India if you replace lots of wheat and rice with these millets? They, they realized that it would be you know, better for soil, better for water, better for micronutrient deficiency, um, but, but with new technology to make it more accessible and easier to process. So it is happening. It is happening. Well, that's an encouraging sign. The book, obviously, I mean, as the title uh, implies, it, uh, there, there, there's a dire warning in, in the story, and perhaps there's a glimmer of hope uh, to the story as well. And I think for me, my experience spending time with the book above all, all else is the, the history of food. Food is who we are and is... is, is the history of all these individual foods is the story of all of these individual cultures. And so um, if only for that, 
the book is just such an illuminating look at, frankly, the world, at, at the sum total of, of, of human culture. So so well done with that, uh, Dan Saladino. I'll remind you, everybody, Mike. the name of the book is Eating to Extinction, the World's Rarest Foods and Why We Need to Save Them. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much, Mike. 